Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart. Hello and welcome to Brexit Unspun, the Financial Times podcast where we debunk the political spin around Brexit. I'm Shona Jenkins. Since 2010, tourism has been the fastest growing sector in the UK in employment terms. Britain is forecast to have a tourism industry worth over £257 billion by 2025, according to Visit Britain, the national tourism agency. But can a sector so dependent on transport and other links with Europe thrive outside the EU? To discuss this, I'm joined by Tanya Pauli, our transport correspondent, Murad Ahmed, our leisure industries correspondent, and Kurt Janssen of the Tourism Alliance. Kurt, could you tell us how tourism is doing at the moment? Has it been affected by the referendum? It has in terms of we're benefiting at the moment from the 15% decrease in the value of the pound against kind of other currencies. So that means that inbound tourism to the UK is up by about 10% this year, as we would predict with our econometric models. What this translates to is about £2.5 billion additional for the UK economy and the creation of about 40,000 new jobs for the UK economy. So at the moment, under the present conditions, we're doing very well, thank you. And I just want to take a question from one of our listeners, Jeremy Davis, who says he's retiring shortly and bought a house in Spain two years ago. He says he's extremely worried about the loss of our rights in Spain and increased costs due to the weak pound and the effects on flights due to the loss of the Open Skies Agreement. Tanya, let's take the issue of transport arrangements first. Do we know what will happen to the Open Skies Agreement? Basically, no. We're still pretty much in a bit of a grey zone at the moment. There's a lot of worry and uncertainty in the market because we just don't know what's going to happen yet. They haven't got to that point where they're actually discussing what happens to flights between UK and Europe. So the worst case scenario, which we've had a few of the kind of airline chiefs warning about, saying that there could be no flights between UK and Europe come 2019. A lot of British ministers keep on saying this is scaremongering, this is very unlikely to happen. At the same time, we just don't know. So how can the airlines plan for this and what are they doing? So we've had a few airlines try to de-risk and kind of prepare for any kind of disruption that might happen as a result of Brexit. So we've had EasyJet who have basically set up an EU subsidiary and that's to ensure that they can still fly between the EU member states. So they're basically making sure that they can still fly from, say, Germany to France. And they've obviously got their UK subsidiary now, so they could fly within the UK as well. And then we've had other airlines like Wizz Air that they're applying for a UK licence, which will enable them to fly within the UK. But at the same time, airlines are saying, look, we need to have an arrangement soon. And we need to know what's going to happen because they plan so far ahead. They've often planned their summer schedules a year ahead. So actually, for them to start offering and selling these tickets, they need basically the EU and the UK government to start really getting around to the fine details. Could I just add to that? The airlines absolutely plan a long time advance, but also the tour operators as well. They'll be getting their brochures together for 2019 at the moment. And of course, they want to know what conditions they're selling products into the European market. They need certainty as soon as possible so they can get their brochures out and start selling. 
Kurt, if we can come back to our listener, what would you say to the question of what will happen to the rights of British people with holiday homes in places like Spain? I wish I could. Everything is kind of subject to negotiation. What I could say from the feedback that we've been getting through our contacts in Europe and the industry here is there is a significant amount of goodwill on both sides to find a resolution to this because while we depend on inbound tourism from Europe for the UK economy, so the European economy relies on UK outbound tourism. So there is a lot of goodwill there, but we just need the government to move forward and provide clarity and certainty. Do you have anything to add to that, Morad? Well, a few things that come up from a consumer perspective on what happens after 2019, after Brexit. A few of the wins that Britain actually had in Europe were in the travel industry. So one of them was the elimination of roaming charges. These are these extortionate fees that you pick up for data costs on your mobile phone. And David Cameron, the former prime minister, held this as a big win for Britain that they were up front and trying to eliminate these things as part of EU directive. We will be outside the scope of EU law by 2019, we think, and therefore those laws don't apply anymore. So you could see, you could see mobile operators hike up their fees, making profits again on that, although there'll be a consumer backlash. But these are some of the risks that come about. One of the things that we think should be okay is something called the European Health Insurance Card. About 200,000 people have used it, but it effectively means that you can get access to the health system in any country, just like any citizen of that country. At the moment, it doesn't apply again if we're outside the EU, but to Michel Barnier, the EU's chief negotiator, and David Davis, the Brexit secretary in the UK, have both said this is one of the things that we basically ironed out and will be part of the agreement. But that's as long as a no-deal scenario is off the table and we actually do have something. So all of these things are up in the air. Now let's hear from another listener. Colin Clark, who is head of a local tourism group in the west of England, writes, I find that although this sector has grown strongly since the Brexit referendum, there has been little information from government on two key issues. Hospitality is very dependent on EU staff. Those here are uncertain and some are leaving. Replacement with adequately trained UK staff will take years. International transport arrangements depend heavily on EU regulation. Clarity on the future status of airlines, etc. is absent. Kurt, you represent an alliance that lobbies the government on behalf of the tourism industry. What have you been telling them? We've been feeding into the Migration Advisory Committee and employment is really high in the agenda for the tourism industry. The stats are that about 11% of people who work in the tourism industry are EU nationals. Now, that's not very high and you could say, well, you know, that doesn't matter that much. But within individual destinations and individual businesses, the figures are quite different. For example, in London, over 30% of the people who work in the sector are EU nationals. And if you look at individual companies like Pret a Manger, Café Rouge, the figures are over 80%. So individual businesses, individual destinations will be affected quite differently and some quite significantly. Now, the problem that we've got is not that kind of overall there's 11% of people who EU nationals working in the industry. The more relevant figure is that over the last three years, almost 50% of the new people working in the industry are EU nationals. So what that tells us is that we have basically run out of British nationals to employ in the industry. So as the unemployment rate has gone down, we're just over 4% at the moment, we don't have anyone in the UK 
who have the skills that we need, have the motivation that we need to give world-class service. So we're increasingly reliant on EU nationals. And if that source of workers is taken out, then we will struggle to fill the vacancies that we've got at the moment and provide the world-class service that we need to. Morad, do you have something to add? Well, I, um, I agree with what Kurt's saying. I spent a lot of my time talking to the chief executives of some of these businesses like Whitbread, which runs Costa Coffee, and this is a really big concern for them because they say they just can't find the labour force in the UK to replace all these EU nationals that work there. And again, places like London are really dependent on this kind of labour. These are people who are working at close to the living wage, close to the minimum wage, and there aren't people who are willing to sacrifice their standard of living to go into these jobs. It's a really big problem. And nobody's really set out how you're going to replace this. You hear the mantra of, you know, British jobs for British people, but these are British jobs that British people just don't want. Kurt, do you think the people you're talking to in the government are receptive to the concerns of the tourism industry? I think we need to break through some of the myths, as has been alluded to here, that there is a pool of British people that have been denied employment opportunities because of EU nationals. That's simply not the case in the tourism industry. And we have to come up with a strategy for providing sources of workers for the industry If the industry is going to continue to grow, as Visit Britain said, there was a real need to find people. We've been talking to government about a series of options. You know, we could take on a quota system. We could relook at the rules for students over here and their ability to work while they're in the country. We could introduce a scheme like the student mobility scheme that applies to countries like New Zealand. We, you can work in the UK for two years before you're 30. Now, if we introduce a scheme like that for Europe, we could get young people who want to come across, learn English, experience the culture here, work and then go back home. So there's a range of options, but we need a kind of an overarching employment strategy for the industry if we're going to go forward. How important is membership of the single market to tourism? Oh, hugely important. Um, we undertook a piece of work for DexEU last year where we basically just wrote down all the major agreements, rules, regulations that underpin the tourism industry. So for the person on the street, They think it's quite an easy process. You look online, you buy your ticket, you get on a plane and you go overseas, have a holiday and come back. What they don't recognise, probably because the EU has been too effective and efficient, is there is an enormous ecosystem of legislation that underpins this single purchase, everything from financial directives, package travel regulations, open skies agreement. What we're trying to get across to government at the moment is we've got to protect and save as much of that legislative ecosystem as we've got at the moment, or else there could be kind of significant disruptions. And is there an alternative, do you think? I don't think so. What we've got is a situation where we've had thousands of highly intelligent people in Brussels working for 40 years to create an environment that eases the flow of people across borders. It's incredibly complex business to simply do away with everything and then try to rebuild it would be chaotic. So there is only one real option, and that's to protect as much as we can of the current legislative framework that underpins travel between countries. Do you have anything to add about the airline sector, Tanya, on this? I agree with what Kurt said, basically. I think all the airlines, especially the British airlines, are hoping for the position to stay as close as possible to what it actually is, because otherwise you start unpicking things and things start unravelling. Is it an issue for other forms besides airlines? 
There is problems, um, especially coaching industry, because they rely on coverage rules for travel within Europe. So a coach that sets off from Victoria Station will travel through France and to Belgium and to the Netherlands. To be able to do that, they rely on coverage rules. Again, that's very complex and will be subject to negotiation. Now, can we talk about the potential benefits? Is this a sector that can help redistribute wealth and reduce some of the inequalities that appear to have been a key motivation for those who voted to leave the EU? Murad? Well, as Kurt spoke about early on, there have been short-term benefits. Like I say, I speak to some of the chief executives here. Um, one, Nick Varney, uh, Merling Entertainments. They're the company that run Madame Tussauds and Legoland. I mean, he was, after the Brexit vote, he was positively bullish because of primarily the the currency impact. He always thought that the sterling was too strong. And so the short-term impact of a record number of international visitors, plus the potential, although we haven't actually seen it, I don't think, in the research, of more people staycationing, could suggest that we would have a stronger tourism industry within the UK. And that could, over time, build out more and more jobs and therefore benefit more and more people. So the worry is more on the longer-term aspects of this and how things play out. Yeah, there are some benefits that will come from leaving the EU. One of the ones that we're working on with government at the moment is the package travel regulations. Now, these regulations were put in place to protect people who travelled internationally within Europe. So in the case of Monarch, it allows customers to be repatriated back to the UK. And if something happens to them while they're overseas, they fall off a balcony on a hotel in Benidorm, they can sue the tour operator in the country of purchase rather than having to chase a Spanish hotel through the Spanish legal system, which, you know, very good consumer protection. Unfortunately, they apply to domestic tourism in the UK, and this causes huge problems for the UK domestic tourism industry. So, if you were a B&B in a village and you wanted to provide a value-added product to your customer, say, stay at my B&B for £100 and I will give you two tickets to the National Trust property across the road. The B&B becomes legally liable for anything that happens to the customer at the National Trust property. So if something unfortunate should happen, they fall down a staircase or something, it's the B&B that gets sued. Now, that risk is too high for B&B operators. So they don't work with other businesses. So you can't find value-added products in the domestic tourism economy. The research we've done shows that if we could get rid of this EU legislation, which has no benefit for customers, it would boost domestic tourism by £2.2 billion a year and create about 40,000 new jobs. So there are some advantages by getting a more sensible approach to some of the European legislation. Tanya? I guess we could also see a bit of a boost for longer haul travel. So, I mean, the government's already working at easing restrictions between China and the UK to kind of see more flights coming to the UK regions. So we could actually see a growth in that part of the market as the UK looks to focus on maybe relationships elsewhere outside of Europe. Yeah. And just as a consumer, is there any chance of getting duty-free back? Lots more cigarettes and booze coming back to the UK from European shores? It looks like that could be uh, an outcome of it. The um, uh, traditional booze cruise over to Europe could be back on the agenda. (laughs) But would these benefits outweigh... The disadvantages, I suppose, is the, is the question. No, no. Um, you know, there is huge advantages of being within the European Union. But you know, if we come out, then we've got to look at the opportunities of being outside. 
Another potential opportunity is the tourism industry has always complained about the levels of VAT that the government applies to accommodation and attractions. It's the second highest in Europe and provides a level playing field for UK companies. We have much better opportunity outside the EU's VAT rules to be able to address this and provide a more competitive environment for the UK domestic and international industry outside the EU. But as I said, these are small opportunities weighed against kind of a much larger benefit of maintaining as much of the infrastructure or the legislative infrastructure with Europe at the moment. Well, I think that's all we have time for. Thank you to Tanya, Morad and Kurt, and thank you for listening. We're taking a short break over Christmas, but we'll be back early in the new year with another episode of Brexit Unspun, when we'll be taking a look, among other things, at the deal Theresa May has reached with Britain's European partners, paving the way for trade negotiations to start in earnest. We hope you'll join us then. And in the meantime, please review or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher or your favourite podcast app. If you have a question or would like to suggest a topic for future episodes, you can also email us at brexitunspun, that's all one word, at ft.com. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.